Okay, guys, back to uh, Exodus chapter 3. You may not remember this. I'm sure you don't remember anything I said last Wednesday, but um, I did tell you that I had to stop short because uh, I was late. I like to finish at 7.15 so that um, we can eat desserts, which we do very well. Um, but I had one more point in that other paragraph before we start at verse 7. So let me make that point, and then we'll launch into verse 7. Okay, in that paragraph down there, 7 to 12, I think it is. One other point. Uh, notice it's in verse 6. Um, and he said, that is, God is speaking. Um, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, gang, um, that is a famous statement right there. I don't know if you know it, but it is. Very famous statement. In fact, so famous is it, it has been made famous by Jesus. Did you know that Jesus quoted this? Um, it, it appears three times in the New Testament, but I think they're all parallel passages, so he might have only appealed to it once. But he quotes this verse of Scripture, and he uses it in a very unique way. Uh, the way that he uses, uses it is not to tell us one doodly squatting thing about Moses. He doesn't use it to draw your attention to Moses. He uses it different from that. And let me tell you how he uses it. He uses Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 to prove the resurrection. That's how he uses it. It's found in uh, Matthew 22, verse 20. Excuse me, 12, verse 20. It's found in, no, that's Mark 12, verse 26, Matthew twenty two thirty two, 32, and in Luke 20, verse 37. I want to read you Luke's account. He says this, but that, the, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, Jesus is speaking. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Gang, all three of those men, <coughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are dead. But notice what God says to, to, to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He hangs his whole defense of the resurrection on the tense of one verb. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because those three men who are dead, or who are dead, are living. I am their God. Presently, I am their God. And he uses that statement, folks, to refute the Sadducees who said that there was no resurrection. Isn't that interesting? Here we are thinking Moses is getting all this information. Yeah. But Jesus uses it in a, in a way that serves a, another purpose, and that is as a proof of the resurrection. Because it doesn't say, I was their God. He says, I am their God. I still am their God because they are, he's a God of the living, not the dead. So what you have in Exodus 3, 6 is a proof of the resurrection. Jesus said so. Now, let's move to the rest of the text. Uh, beginning at verse 7, I need to read it to you, and we're behind again. Um, uh, 7 through 12. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the Jebusites, excuse me, to the, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression uh, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Guys, um, I said to you last week that verses 3 through 6 was really a, a description of the conversion of Moses. I'm saying that, that um, Moses became a genuine believer in this, this passage of uh, Exodus 3, verses 3 through 6. That was my premise all of last week. Now, here's my new premise. That now that Moses is converted, God begins to introduce himself as to what he's like. This new God that you now have, Moses, let me tell you a few things about me. I want you to know who I am and what I'm like. And so you begin to get some things, uh, some information about this new God that now Moses now has. Now, here's the first thing um, that I want you to see. Did you notice these verbs? Verse 7. I have surely seen, um, I've heard, and I know. I have seen, I have heard, and I, have, and I know. Guys, I'm reading a book. It's a big book. It's 731 pages. Sam Brummett gave it to me, and dead gum him. Um, you know, everything that he reads, he likes, he gives to me, and I really kind of like it too. But it's a book on Alexander Hamilton. Um, Um, who was the first president of the United States? George Washington. Who was the second president of the United States? John Adams. Who was the third president of the United States? Thomas Jefferson. Do you know what a cad Thomas Jefferson was? He was a bad man. He had a... Um, a mistress who was a slave, who was probably the half-sister of his own wife who died at age 34. Uh, Jefferson's wife died at age 34. He never remarried because he had this mistress by the name of Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings uh, had seven children, all of them parented by Thomas Jefferson, or at least we so think. In fact, she said on her deathbed, your father, to all seven of her children, that um, uh, your father is Thomas Jefferson. Um, the only slaves that Thomas Jefferson ever set free were slaves born to Sally Hemings. But that's nice, but he never set Sally Hemings free. He never released her from slavery because um, he had other things in mind. He was, he was a bad man, but he wrote the Declaration of Independence. We like that. But forget all that about Sally Hemings. I shouldn't have told you all those historical facts 
of the third president of the United States. But here's another one I can tell you. Do you know what his religious preference was? Thomas Jefferson... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they come out and they... There we go. There we go. <laughs> I'm supposed to be able to trust this thing, don't you think? But I can't trust this thing. And All right. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. By the way, so was Benjamin Franklin. And so was John Adams. They were all deists. Do you know what a deist is? Do you know what their, their whole theological mindset is of deism? Deism says this, that God was an absentee landlord. He was like a clockmaker who made this wonderfully intricate clock. He wound it up. And then he flung it out into the universe and he said, unwind. That's what. (laughs) That's what deism says. That God is, he is, um, he is separate. He is, um, he's, he's not involved, you know, uh, he's detached, um, He does not have any sense of participation in the history of mankind. He's just the absentee landlord. Now, ladies and gentlemen, go read the text. Go look at verse 7. What does that say? I have seen, I have heard, and I know. And then look at verse 8. And I have come down. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like a God who's unattached, uninvolved, distant? Or does it sound like a God intimately associated with all of his people's ways? Because that's the God who exists. Not the God of Thomas Jefferson. That's sheer deism, ladies and gentlemen, to suggest. But here what you find is a God intimately involved. Um, I'm no absentee landlord. No, no, no. I've heard of your sufferings. I know of your oppression. And I have come down. Remember, remember guys, Moses just got converted in verses 3 through 6. And now God's introducing himself. And here's the thing that I want you to know about me, Moses. Thomas Jefferson was wrong. I'm a God who sees. I'm a God who hears. I'm a God who knows. And I'm a God who stepped into human history to to remedy this oppression of my people. I know of Israel's bondage. I'm going to do something about it. Because I have seen and I have heard and I know. You know, there's this story, I think I've told this here before. I mean, it's it's kind of a silly story, but it does make a point. The silly story is a mother who was trying to raise her daughter correctly goes into Tucker in bed one night and and, um, maybe she's thinking she's doing a good thing. Maybe she is. Uh, and she says to her little girl who's about to go to sleep, she said, now, darling, I want you to remember, 
that God knows of all of your sins, every last one of them. And the little girl says, Oh, Mommy, that is wonderful. And Mommy says, Wonderful? Why, 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 is, that, why is that wonderful? Because, Mommy, that means Jesus died and didn't miss a one. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you do not belong to this God through faith in Christ, to be told that He sees and He hears and He knows and that He has come down, that's pretty scary. I don't blame you. I'd be a deist too. Because I don't want that God to see all that I did. I, I mean, if I'm Thomas Jefferson, I don't want him to know what I'm doing with Sally Hemings. <laughs> Not him. Well, I don't want him to see that. No, he's an absentee landlord. Isn't that convenient? But ladies and gentlemen, that is not the God that you find in Exodus 3. That is not the God that is introducing himself to Moses. Okay, here's the, here's the next thing, and then I'll have to quit because I have to go to a meeting. I, that's what I do with my life. I meet. Um, uh, I want you to notice something in verse, in, in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. My people. Okay, keep your finger there and flip over to Exodus 32. Because, folks, this is something that you need to know about God. I mean, this is something we need to know about God. Moses, I mean, Moses, you know, you just became a Christian a minute ago, and, uh, you know, there's some things you need to know about me. You know, first of all, I'm not a deist. I'm not a deist. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, they were all wrong. No, I, I, I have come down to be involved in human history. But here's another thing I want you to know. Um, and, and, and now we're looking at um, uh, Exodus 32. Look at verse, <laughs> you know, in my great chapter series, you know, that I'm presently in, I'm going to do Exodus 32 one day. And the title of the series is going to be the chapter that nobody wants to read. Because Exodus 32 is about the golden calf. woo Is that awful? There's terrible things. Aaron's a big fat liar. I mean, you know, the high priest? Number two to Moses? He's a, he's a, he's a bad man. Aaron, that religious guy, the head of the church. You know, that's one. He, he's bad. You don't want to read this chapter? Oh, the Levites killed 3,000 people and then God, oh, it's a terrible chapter. But after this golden calf thing starts, look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Over here it says, they're my people. Uh, but over here God says, hey, Moses. You know those people you brought up out of Egypt? You need to go down and tend to them. Those people that are your people, Moses. Now I want you to notice what Moses says. Moses implored the Lord as God and said, this is verse 11, excuse me. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? God says to Moses, Moses, go down and take care of those people of yours. You know, the ones you brought out of Egypt. And Moses says, oh, well, wait a minute. They're not my people. 
They're your people. Uh, you're the one that brought them out. You know, I was just a pawn in your hand. And they're your people. Okay, guys. Back here when God is telling Moses things about himself, and he calls you my people, tell me, my brother and sister, what is it that prompts God to disown you? What is it? Sin. Now let me, let me really quickly say this because somebody's going to be out there saying, I, I don't, if you're his people tonight, you will always be his people, okay? Eternal security. But, ladies and gentlemen, what is it that causes you to sense That he's abandoned me. It's my sin. Gang, don't you know the truth of that? Have you never been there, or am I the only one? You know, guys, my sin is not going to boot me out of the kingdom. But what my sin does is put me in a place where I do not enjoy him. And I'm a tad frightened by him. Because I know what I did. And I know that I never should have done it. And so all of that sweet fellowship and relationship that we've enjoyed in the past, that's gone! And what did it? My sin. My sin did it. So ladies and gentlemen, you've seen the little bumper sticker. If you feel that God has deserted you, guess who moved? We did. We're the ones that chose another God. We're the ones that wanted to have an absolute... Ooh, I almost said a word I'm not supposed to say. What do we call a wild, crazy party now? You know that other word I'm not supposed to use anymore. But because I want to have that kind of party, I forget all about him. And then all of a sudden, all of that sweetness, all of that enjoyment, all of that sense of his pleasure, gone. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. Folks, I've said this a half a million times in 29 years here. I'm going to say it another half a million. The 
the greatest enemy you have is sin. And the best friend you have is obedience. Our Father, um, teach us more and more about who you are. That you are a God intimately associated with all our ways. And that you are a God who has an inflexible hatred towards sin. To the point that we would feel disowned because of our sin. Might we treasure the sweetness and the camaraderie and the enjoyment of relationship with you more than any sin that could ever entice us. And Father, I do pray that you will send none of these diseases onto your people. We don't deserve that you do that. But we ask for your mercy. And then in the meantime, would you use us to tell a very frightened world that the real solution, the real remedy is not in medicine. The real remedy is to be rightly related, to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Use us to broadcast that message, Father, and bring all kinds of frightened and terrified and shaken people into this place. Might we have the privilege of introducing them. We as beggars, could we go show them where we found bread? We ask it, of course, in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Thanks, guys. There's a dessert.